Amazingly enough, when you think about the Apostle Paul and when you think about what we know about our salvation, when you think about what we know about our relationship with the Lord, a vast majority of it uh, is really found here in the book of Romans. It's like the heart, the soul of the gospel, Christian life and living, and so when you think of the book of Romans as we've taken uh, what has already been 57 studies by the time we finish, uh, there will be 59, uh, we have hardly scratched the surface uh, of what this amazing book really means to the body of Christ. It's the center of what we call the Romans road, so how we uh, really understand our relationship by grace and through faith with the Lord Uh, all of those things. But it's interesting to me that as we draw near the end of the book of Romans, that the Apostle Paul spends this time reminding us of all these people who helped him along the way. And so as we turn our attention to verse 1, we pick up the story of Paul's love for people. Uh, And as we think on those people and how God uses them. Uh, Think of your own life. Think of those people that God has used in your life to get you where you are tonight. As you and I are here, we're not here alone. And in fact, one of the beauties of the body of Christ is this. Uh, Ministry is actually about people. It's for people. It happens through people. And in that sense, we are both focused on and indebted to people. And in fact, ministry would be really easy if it were not for the fact that we have to deal with people. Amen? Because it's people that are the focus. It's also people that are the problem. It's people that we minister to, and it's people that cause us to to really have to stress and struggle and strain at times in order to... Now, see the work of the Lord done. And so tonight, uh, Paul's love for people. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this time tonight in your word. And we pray, uh, God, that you would make us mindful of those that have helped us along the way. Pray that you would speak to us through the lives of these whom Paul names by name here in this final chapter as having been a blessing to him. We pray that you administer to us through your word. Strengthen us to receive it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, when I think back on my own time in ministry, there are literally hundreds of people that I could probably name by name. But I would remind you, and I I remind you, uh, that I wouldn't be here first and foremost were it not for my bride, for my wife. No one has been used in my life more than she has. As, as, a, as a counselor, as someone who speaks God's truth into my life, who knows me like no one else knows me on the face of the earth, I think of Pastor Chuck, spending almost a quarter of a century alongside of him, serving with him and traveling around the world. I think of Pastor Steve. But I also think of Pastor Brian and where Connie and I Uh, began in ministry 30-plus years ago. And then I think of Pastor Rob and Pat, and I think of Joan Ann, who assists me every single day 
and keeping track of all the pieces and parts and Robin in the accounting office. And as we think on ministry, we have to remind ourselves of those who have blessed us in ministry. And so Paul does that beginning here in verse 1. And he says, I commend to you, and it's interesting to me, that the first person he names by name is not a man. Biblical Christianity often gets this rap of misogyny and chauvinism. And Scripture actually does not only not present that picture, but it presents a completely different picture, and that is one that there are an awful lot of women named by name in Scripture who are mightily used of the Lord. And so be careful about how far you take the issue of submission. We covered it in our time in the book of Ephesians. But in this case, we have a woman who's entrusted with this amazing book that is the center of most of what we know about justification and sanctification and maturation, what we know about sin, what we know about God's plan for the nation Israel in the New Testament, uh, in the sense that someone else wrote besides the Old Testament prophets, it was the Apostle Paul, he did so in this book, and this book is actually going to be entrusted uh, to be taken to Rome uh, by Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Centuria that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints. And it's interesting to me that when you look at the word saints, there is no gender designation for saints. There's not male saints and female saints. And in fact, Paul's already said that in Christ Jesus, there is neither male nor is there female. There is not Greek. There is not Roman. There is not Jew and Gentile. There's just plain saints. And the reason that I want to say that to you that way is we all matter to God. And what God has called us to do, he has called us to do collectively. He's gifted us individually, but the ministry that we embark on is collective. It, it involves all of us doing what God has called us to do. And if any of us fail, we all suffer for it. And if we succeed, we succeed together. And so remember that when you think about the body of Christ. And he says, and assist her in whatever business she has need of for you. For indeed, she has been a helper of many and of myself also. So this amazing sister that's mentioned by name, he spends more time on this one woman than he does on anyone else in this chapter. And so I think there's some things that we can glean and things that we can learn as, as we look at this beginning of this final chapter. He uses the term in the Greek language for servant of actually diakonos. And diakonos is a gender-neutral term. Uh, it is sometimes an office, and it is sometimes used in the context, as it is here, for someone who comes alongside or someone who serves or someone who is a helper. And from it, we get our English word, deacon, and its derivative, deaconess. And those two words are also, though we separate them to designate a male and a female person who does those things, let me give you a little secret here. 
that is not how it is written in the original language. There is no gender designation there. We did that because the church believed that there was a difference between a woman who serves and a man who serves. But the Bible actually does not present that picture. The Bible presents a complete neutrality in this particular gift of being a servant or being one who serves in the church. And so this particular aspect of service is not, in Scripture, gender segregated. It's used in a very, very neutral way. And in fact, even though it is used as an office by Paul as he writes to Timothy in the sense of of a deacon, he does the same thing as he writes to the church at Philippi, Uh, it is just someone who has a gift of service within the church. And so we see that in a very powerful way in our modern day and time in that we have, uh, believe it or not, here on staff, we have almost as many ladies on staff here at this church as we do men. And they occupy some fairly important positions, uh, including in our accounting office, our front office, administrative. There's all kinds of gifts of service, and they are used for the glory of the Lord. Please don't make Christianity a male-centric affair, because it's not. God chose Christ to be the Savior of all, both male and female. And so use your gifts for the glory of the Lord, whether you are male or whether you are female, and use them to the fullest of their extent. You see, Paul will go on and write about several other church offices, and he'll do so as he writes to Timothy. But as he does so, as he writes to both Timothy and Titus, he talks about women who must be dignified, not malicious, temperate, and faithful in all things, which, by the way, are the exact same qualifications that he uses for elders. And so when we think about how God is using this woman, Phoebe, in Paul's life. Uh, Those standards that he uses are the one set of standards that are used for everybody. There isn't a separate set for men and another set for women. Uh, And as he would write again to Timothy in in chapter 3, he actually says, likewise, uses the word to join together as if the qualifications are not only to be understood to be the same for both men and women, but also the authority with which they are exercised to be the same for both men and women. So when I walk into the accounting office and I'm talking to Robin, I talk to her as a co-equal with her gift in accounting as something that I need to honor and make sure that she holds that honor. When I walk into the women's ministry offices, I don't walk in and begin to tell Connie and Nene and Jenny exactly how they ought to do women's ministry. I believe that God has actually called them and he's uniquely gifted them and they lead without intervention from me because I'm a man. So when you think on the roles in the church. Remember, God had them perfect in Scripture, and it is we who are human beings. Remember I said ministry would be easy if it weren't for people that at times have confused the issue and, and made example of things that 
I think Scripture leaves in a much more neutral term. And as I said, this word that's translated servant uh, has no feminine form. It's just simply those who serve. Interestingly enough, in the first century church, women not only baptized, but they also discipled women. And so even though Paul made an exception and said that a a woman shouldn't exercise authority over a man in the culture of the day and time, they were still actively engaged in the same basic roles within the church as we would also call elders. So they taught the women, they baptized the ladies, there were a whole bunch of things that the women also did that were exactly the same as what men did, though they did them in a role that was... Uh, suited for the culture that was primarily to the ladies within the church. But nonetheless, they actually taught the word as well. And in fact, when we look at the book of Acts, we find a very interesting account uh, in chapter 18 of the book of Acts. And here you have this couple, which will be in this passage tonight, Priscilla and Aquila. And it is actually both of them, Priscilla, that proceed to teach the great apostle Apollos. And if you remember, as one would be of Paul and one would be of Apollos, this incredibly gifted man of God, Apollos was actually taught by a woman, Priscilla. And so Paul makes it very clear that ladies have a powerful and a wonderful role within the church. And this woman was no ordinary helper. She wasn't confined to just making the punch and cookies. Uh, She was given a whole bunch of responsibility within the church, and she was very, very good at it. She was, in that sense, a Proverbs 31 woman. She was intelligent, very clear. Uh, She was a person of influence. She was also a person of financial means, and she took all of those gifts and used them for the 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 glory of God. And so this statement that Paul makes really makes a case for us that I, I think we at times kind of dumb down the role of women in the church, and we need to be careful that we're following what God's Word says as opposed to what tradition says uh, within certain denominational groups uh, of evangelical Christendom. Read Proverbs 31 and ask yourself if that woman was, you know, sitting home just baking cookies. Um, I think the case in that case is no. I've had the pleasure of serving alongside of brilliant women. Those brilliant women are every bit as intelligent as any man that I have ever met. Uh, They are as gifted in areas of intelligence as any man I've ever met. And so I think as we think on this, that this woman Phoebe is emblematic uh, of a woman of excellence who carried out her task given to her by God Uh, And she's the only one to whom in this entire chapter, two verses are actually given to her character. And so there's a lot of men in there. And I think it says something to us. She was an amazing sister servant. Her name actually means bright. It means radiant. Uh, We would put those two things together and actually make brilliant out of it. And, And so she served in a wonderful capacity in the church. As we move on, verse 3, we see some amazing additional friends. Uh, And we see mentioned here 
and greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. And when he uses the phrase in Christ Jesus, he's talking about the work of the gospel. Now he's mentioned a man and a woman. He's made no segregation there. So again, the same principle applies. They were both engaged in the work of the gospel. This whole concept that a woman can't preach the gospel or a woman can't teach does not come from Scripture. It comes from denominational Christendom, primarily in Europe and here in the United States. What Scripture does say is that a woman ought not exercise authority over a man because God has clearly laid out in the book of Ephesians that there is an order within marriage, and so that same order ought to extend into the church. But as far as a woman being able to teach men, that actually is not found in Scripture. The exact opposite is found in Scripture, while in a very specified role, and the role of pastor is also reserved uh, in Scripture for that of a man, again, having to do with nothing more than headship, both in marriage and in the church, so that there's unity in that headship. And so he says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their own necks, and notice it's plural, their own necks, for my life to whom I not only give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles likewise greet the church that is in their house. And so they had a house church, and they wonderfully were used of the Lord to provide for the Apostle Paul. They provided protection for him. Uh, We're not sure when this risking of their lives occurred. Scripture doesn't say. But what it does say is that this couple together both risked their lives for the Apostle Paul. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who was of the first fruits of Acacia to Christ. Greet Mary, who labored uh, for us much. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my countrymen. And when it says countrymen, uh, I believe that the, the language there is very clear that they were Jewish. And so many of these names are Greek names. Many of them are clearly Gentile. But here he's listing two of his brothers, Uh, his countrymen, which would have been uh, Jews who were also imprisoned with them, my fellow prisoners, who were of note among the apostles, who were also in Christ before me. In other words, they were actually believers before the apostle Paul had his conversion experience on the road to Damascus that we find in Acts 9. Uh, And so so Paul joins this group of of Jewish believers uh, that There were some folks in it before he became a a believer himself, and certainly before he was an apostle. And greet Amphilius, my beloved in the Lord. You're going to notice that actually four uh, of these these specific uh, brothers are named as beloved. It means greatly loved, deeply loved. Uh, It means that when Paul thought of them, he did so in a loving way, not just in a practical way, but there was a deep, an abiding relationship uh, between them. And again, it paints a picture for us in ministry and in life. Uh, As we grow in Christ, as we serve the Lord, you're going to develop relationships where you will have people who are beloved. You will think fondly of those people uh, that have been used in your life. Uh, I know I certainly have those. Connie and I have them together. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, And Stachys, uh, my beloved, greet Apelles, approved in Christ. And so he's using some different verbs here uh, that 
really kind of give us a uh, very well-rounded picture of how he's been used of the Lord. So some of these people are workers, some of these people are gospel-centric, uh, some of them uh, are, are what we would call maybe theologians, they're approved, some of them are uh, those who would be used in, in ways of service to make sure that uh, people's needs were met, they would have the gift of hospitality, Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus, and greet Herodian, my own countryman, so another Jewish person, who are of the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Trophenia, Tryphosa, who labored in the Lord, and greet beloved Persis, who also labored much in the Lord, and greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. And so, here is, a, here is a person whom appears to have some connection to the Apostle Paul, um, chosen in the Lord, and, and probably someone who's in Paul's life uh, that we would call a mother figure, someone who was used to, to minister to him. You know, as old as we guys get, sometimes we just want mommy. And apparently the Apostle Paul was no different. There was, there was a lady in his life, who was able to kind of fill in. Uh, we're not told about Paul's family, his true family, uh, beyond the fact that we knew he was not at this time married. Uh, but here is a woman who is an elder woman in his life uh, that is like a mom to him. Greet Astenicris, Felgion, Aramis, Petrobus, and Hermes, and the brethren who are with them. And greet Philogus and Julia and Nereus' sister. And you, you can see some families in here as well where the Apostle Paul has been used in their lives and uh, it's led to other members of the same family coming to faith in Christ and Olympus and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss and the churches of Christ greet you. And we wish that we had the details behind all these lives, but we don't. And so those things that are left out of Scripture at times are equally as important. And I think partly because in this case, when we have lots of details, then people begin to uh, make more out of them than there really is. This is, I believe, giving a picture uh, that we're just all the beneficiaries of the body of Christ. That, that we actually, as a, as a team, as it were, uh, function in this world. And so all of these names, uh, people who risked their lives, people who at the time of this writing were in Rome, people who were still in Greece, people who were still in Corinth, uh, people who were beloved by Paul, people who when he thought of them, there was just a, a connection of deep and abiding love. You know, there are people in my life that I look back with, with a little more uh, of a technical, theological perspective, and I can honestly say that I don't necessarily have that beloved sense, but they're still very important in my life. I can think of some Bible college teachers. I can think of people whom I have served with and they had more administrative roles. I, I can even remember back to uh, the great Pastor Romaine at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. I, I can't say as he was beloved by me. 
he, he was more feared than anything else. But he helped shape me in some ways as I had to deal with sometimes his a very abrupt manner being a former Marine Corps drill sergeant. He had a way of looking at guys and just saying, I'll never forget the first time I met him and Connie was with me and he, he looked at her and said, are, are you still married to him? You know, it was, it was the kind of guy he was. It was like, he just, you know, knew how to hit you between the eyes so that you, you know, you grew up a little bit. So not everyone we think of as beloved. Not everyone we think of in an administrative role. Not everyone we think of in a role of hospitality. Uh, I've had people when I've traveled uh, very often, when I, especially in, in Central Latin America, I travel and I have friends and, and I see them. Uh, it boggles my mind that they, they travel for hours to come to the airport just to say hello. Uh, and that's a gift, that is, that is the gift of hospitality when someone is coming and making you welcome. And so those gifts are important. And so don't dismiss the gifts that God's given you. Uh, these, these additional saints are amazing examples to us. Some of them got in harm's way for the Apostle Paul. They laid down their lives and, and while we're not sure of the exact rendering of the original language into English here, whether it's a, a physical thing or whether it was a provisional thing, but the fact was is they invested in such a way that the Apostle Paul benefited so much so that his life continued because they put part of theirs down, very much like Jesus. Amen? The conversion of, of Epinetus leads to the salvation of many others. You know, sometimes you, you have people in your life that you've led to Christ. And maybe you don't feel like you have the gift of evangelism. All of us exercise uh, some evangelism as we share just our testimony. But every once in a while, you'll lead someone to faith in Christ and they actually become an evangelist. They're, they're one of those people, you, they're just like people magnets for Jesus. You're, you're likely going to have people like that in your life. And that's why it's so important that you don't ever forsake the opportunity to share the gospel with people because you don't know when the next Epinetus is going to come along. to Where you share Christ with them and maybe you're one of those people that God uses it in more practical ways. Maybe you have the gift of serving or the gift of administration, and you, you don't really see yourself as a pastor or a teacher or an evangelist, but you might lead that one person who does have those gifts to faith in Christ. So allow God to use the gifts that he's given you, because we truly are in this together. D.L. Moody himself was, was led to faith in Christ by a shoe salesman. So don't dismiss the gifts that God's given you. Paul then moves on to do something that is difficult. He gives a strong exhortation. He gives a strong caution to the body as he closes out this letter He's going to remind them that it's very, very important that we cling to sound doctrine. Verse 17, 
And now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses, contrary to the doctrine which you learn, and notice this, avoid them. Now, he is not saying beat them up. He's certainly not saying harm them. But he is saying avoid them. And I can tell you from a a lot of conversations over many, many, many years, decades, that there are people who Satan keeps on this earth just to waste my time. And they come with all manner of absolutely not God-honoring things that they want to discuss with me. And it usually has to do with crazy sideways doctrine. Uh, Almost always has something to do with their particular bent. Very often is their own self-authored book. Uh, it, It is amazing how much time, effort, and energy you can spend on bad doctrine. Be careful. Those people get into the church and they cause division. They claim to have had a word from the Lord. And it's contrary to absolutely everything that the whole rest of the church has heard. They, They claim to have some specific doctrinal thing that only they know. And I'm going to remind you that Scripture is very clear that no doctrine is of private interpretation. So if you're the only one who knows it, you didn't hear it from God. He's given a warning here. Contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. For those are such who do not serve our Lord. They don't serve the Lord Jesus Christ. But they serve their own belly, and the word he's using for belly isn't here like he's talking about food. It's talking about the center of their being. It is a deep-seated thing within them. By smooth words, flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the simple. It's interesting when heretics get in the church, they generally try and pick off the people who don't know any better. Maybe they're new believers. Maybe they're people that are on the fringes of church life. They have a tendency to congregate in the hallways and out in the parking lots. And rather than starting their own church, they're simply sheep stealers. And so they try and gain an army by going church to church to church to church. And it's interesting when you talk to them because you'll ask them and ultimately you come to this will be what they'll say. Well, I haven't found a church yet that's good enough. And that's because most of those churches they went to probably had sound doctrine, and they're the odd one, but they have a tendency to believe that they're the only ones with the correct doctrine, and so everyone else is wrong. Let me give you a little secret here. When you have doctrine that doesn't line up with God's Word, and 150 people have told you so, you probably want to go back to the Bible instead of continuing down the road that you're on. And so Paul makes a warning here, because in dealing with people, you're also going to deal with aberration. You're going to deal with self-motivation. You're going to deal with people who have an agenda, and it's their agenda. It's not God's agenda. 
and we are to watch out for them. And in fact, ultimately, Scripture says we're to mark them. We're to literally make known uh, that they're doing these things. For your obedience has become known to all, and therefore I'm glad on your behalf. When Paul thinks of them, he says, you guys are doctrinally sound. You, you understand what the Word says. I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. Can I tell you one of the reasons that Christians ought to avoid any type of immersion into things that are evil on a regular basis? We all occasionally are going to get near evil because we're in this world and we're not of it. But you want to be very careful about parking yourself where there is a lot of evil because it does have a tendency to wear off. And he says, so be innocent of it. I'm amazed sometimes that people think they can watch some of the television shows that are on TV and not be stained by it. Not end up with some difficulties in their life because they're hearing things consistently, frequently, and often that ultimately cause them to ponder that evil. They think on those things. It becomes part of their thought process. That's why sometimes I, you know, I'll get embroiled with people, you know, we need to do more sex education in school. You don't need to tell 12-year-olds about human sexuality. And the reason you don't is they're already thinking about it. And so the more you remind them of it, what do you think they're thinking on? That, that is best left at home. That's not the role of government. That's the role of mom and dad. It's not the role of television. It's the role of mom and dad. It's not the role of the internet. It's the role of mom and dad. And parents, raise your own children in the training, the admonition of the Lord, so that when they get old, they'll not depart from it. You see, sometimes we allow our kids to be immersed in things that are inherently evil, and we wonder why they end up messed up. Just be innocent of evil. Be careful about where you put yourself. And the God of peace will crush Satan underneath your feet shortly. Amen? One day he's going down. Can't wait for that day. In the meantime, he's got a little more leash than I'd like him to have. But he's a defeated foe. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. You see, godly love, as we'll see when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we're going to 1 Corinthians next, so powerful book, two books, we'll take 1 and 2 Corinthians. But you, you see, one of the things that you'll find in 1 Corinthians 13 is love doesn't rejoice in evil, but rejoices in good. And that's kind of in view in this passage. It's like we have to pick and choose what we're going to rejoice in. Uh, and so the Apostle Paul is talking about, man, make sure that your doctrine is spot on. Be because when it's messed up, it, it, it starts getting twisted. When it gets twisted, you start to believe lots of crazy things. When you believe crazy things, sometimes you try and convince other people of those same crazy things. And so we do have to look at what we believe based on Scripture itself. And this warning, in some ways, is not so much about uh, just a, a, a minor doctrinal difference where, you know, we might have a discussion, but it's talking about things that are heretically damaging to people's lives. I had an email today, and it was the, the center and the focus of that email 
It was, it was a good email because there was a genuine, deep concern. And it was, where does the church stand on the use of fetal DNA extracted from abortions for the purpose of making vaccines? And I, I wrote back a very long, lengthy uh, explanation of where we stand on the issue of abortion. God hates abortion. It's that simple. And so the church has to also hate abortion. And when someone is willing to say that it's okay that you can take another human life simply because it resides within inside of another human being, you have some very strong doctrinal issues that are in play there. And so I went on to explain those things. Why? Because there's a whole bunch of what claims to be God's church that seems to have no problem with abortion. God has a problem with it, and he's made that very clear in his word. And the reason that abortion is not talked about in Scripture is very simple. It was unthinkable to a Hebrew. And so when God came up with all of the commands and the laws that were passed along to the Jewish people, which would eventually be from which we get our laws in this country, we have a Judeo-Christian basis for our laws in this country, the reason that that wasn't mentioned is because life was considered, according to the prophet David, to exist in the womb from the beginning. See, David got a picture that God understood DNA. And when the egg and the sperm, each with 23 chromosomes combined, you got now 46. And once that happens... That is a new, completely separate human being that is absolutely not like any other human being on the face of the earth. And so the reason I say this is sometimes people will say, well, you know, it's not that big a deal. Here in this church, we're okay with it. Well, here in this church, we're not okay with it because the Bible is our defense. We get our doctrine from Scripture We don't get our doctrine from politics. We get what we believe because God's word backs up what we believe. And that's what's in view here. Our belief system comes from the scriptures. It does not come from culture. Paul would write to Titus in chapter 3 of that book. He would say to shun foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law because they are unprofitable. They are worthless. He would write to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, refuse foolish and ignorant speculations knowing that they produce quarrels. It's amazing how many things the church argues over that are solved instantaneously by simply going to the Bible. Just read what it says and do it. Sound, correct doctrine. And so he uses this Greek word, keep your eye on it. It's a word that we know very well. It's skopeo. And from it, we get both telescope and microscope and also our modern colloquialism, scope it out. Check it out for yourself. Look at it in light of what Scripture actually says. It's not talking about some kind of litmus test or a you know, some kind of legalism here. He's just simply saying, take the Bible, read what it says, 
and compare it to the thing that's being said by the person, and if it's validated by Scripture, then you can know that it's truth. If it's not validated by Scripture, then you have to ask yourself some additional questions. But when Scripture speaks, that is our opinion. That's what we believe. We are identified. Brothers and sisters, it's important that we grab this. We are identified by Christ, and the only way we know anything about Christ is from our Bibles. It's not from the writings of the early church historians. What we know about being Christians comes from the Word. So the moment we say we're Christians, we are identifying with the Word. That's why the Word is central to what we believe. It's central to who we are. We scope it out. We believe what we believe because the Bible says so. Paul next gives a caution, really about his own caution, if you will. He's not implying that we have the right to harm people who are heretics. Um, Frankly, that's exactly how we ended up with the Spanish Inquisition uh, during the time of the Reformation. That's how we ended up with Crusades in the year 1000 to the 1100s. You know, we'll just go and anybody that's against God, we'll just kill them. Scripture doesn't, not only doesn't back that up, it exactly says the opposite. Matter of fact, Jesus himself in Luke chapter 9 uh, said, what kind, of you spirit, what kind of spirit do you think that we are of? For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. So we as Christians arm ourselves with the truth, not with a sword. And that's why what we would think of those who you know, think that we need to harm somebody to get them to convert is such an anathema to us. That's why you don't find any Christian suicide bombers. Right? That's not God's way. Ever. And I'll tell you this, Paul often both argued with and debated unbelievers. He would talk to them about their position because they were blind. They spiritually couldn't see. And so he would engage them in conversation. The book of Acts records this multiple times. On the hill of the Oropagus, on Mars Hill, he, he gets into all kinds of debates with people. And he says, look, isn't this, the, this little niche right here, isn't this the unknown God? Let me tell you about the unknown God. And so he talked to people who did not know the Lord in a much different way than he talked to people who claimed to know Jesus Christ. When he found someone who was a heretic that claimed to know Jesus but was leading people astray, those are the harshest words that Paul speaks in the Bible. That's where he said, no, no. The book of Galatians is full of his... his, in essence, counsel on this issue. He said, who beguiled you? How is it that you have turned away so quickly? You see, the Apostle Paul was saying, look, you want to denounce those people, but don't sit around and debate them because it's an endless line of reasoning that they go down that eventually you're just going to chase your tail around in a circle. Just say, look, 
Go back and read your Bible. And when you go back and read your Bible, we can talk about the truth, but I'm not going to sit here and, and debate the lie with you. I'll give you an example of this. Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door. If you want to take their tracks so that nobody else gets them and use them to light your fireplace with, great idea. But I can tell you that you're going to go in circles trying to convince them of the truth because they are blind to the truth and until the gospel uh, becomes real to them, until they realize that Jesus Christ is in fact God, which is their main claim, that he is not God, they do not believe in the Trinity, uh, you're going to have very little success of convincing them of anything. So just flatly denounce what they believe Say, God bless you, thank you. Jesus saves, and Jesus alone saves. He's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one goes to the Father, comes to the Father but by him. You can give them some truth, but don't, please don't invite them into your house so that you can talk about their doctrine, because all they're going to do is spin you around in circles. You say, we don't have anything to talk about until you realize that Jesus Christ is God's own son, and he is God. And then they'll misquote John chapter 1. And you can just say, who else in the world uses your Bible except for you? Because they're the only one that used that new century version. And it's mistranslated by some guys who had less than high school diplomas. And that's not a guess. That's actually the truth. No degrees in Near Eastern language. Never studied Hebrew or Greek. They just chose to change what it says. So don't debate with them. Just tell them you don't want to hear it. That's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, by the way, in Matthew chapter 7, said, beware of false prophets. They will come in what kind of clothing? Sheeps. They're going to look like they're, you know, fluffy and huggable and really nice. They're going to say nice things, but inwardly they are as ravenous wolves. Their, their goal is to disarm and then eat you. Don't be caught off guard. It is, it is very, very sad when I hear of that, well, you know, I met this nice Mormon young man. Got the wrong Jesus. Be careful. Why do we even bother confronting heresy? Paul gives us a couple of negative reasons. Basically, their motives are incorrect. Their, their teaching is destructive. I defy you to go find a Jehovah's Witness church that has more than about 100 people in it. There are a few, but they're few and far between. The reason being, it's destructive. You don't want to get caught up in something that can destroy you. So be careful. I'm warning you as your pastor. Be careful. These men, Jude would say, are like hidden reefs in our love feast. In other words, they lie below the surface. They care for themselves. They're like clouds without water, carried along by winds, uprooted by the waves of the sea. 
but they're reserved for chains and darkness. Paul finally ends this by giving a glowing report of their obedience to the word. That's where you want to stand. That's where you want to stay. That's where you want to go. Just be students of the word. You, won't, you will not go wrong. When somebody brings you something new, take out your Bible, and if they can't prove it with the Bible, say, I'll get back to you. I'll, I'll talk to you later about it. And in that sense, the best protection against falsehood is the truth, isn't it? Well a well-armed church that's armed with the word is a powerful force because people can't come alongside and tell you something. It's like, no, I here, let me show you where that is. They go, doesn't that say something different right there? And all of a sudden they don't have a leg to stand on because they're forced to either confront the fact that the word doesn't justify what they're saying or they didn't know that the word actually said that. You might actually convert them at that place. And so he says, be innocent in that which is evil, but know what is good. Make sure that you understand what the good is. That's why we gather on, in our, on our midweek service. Because there's a lot of deceit out there. And there's deceit that comes from the world. There's deceit that comes from false teaching. There's deceit that comes from false teachers. There's deceit that comes from friends and family. The world's a deceptive place. And so arm yourself with the truth. And Paul finally wraps all this up with a handful of faithful companions, among which uh, he will write a couple of letters. Timothy, his young understudy, verse 21. Timothy, my fellow worker, Lucius, Jason, Sosipater, Again, his countrymen greet you. Tertius, who wrote this epistle, he's an amuenus. He, he's the, a scribe is probably the easiest way to talk. But he's really a secretary. He's someone who sits down and remember Paul's vision as far as church history is concerned is bad. Uh, he'll actually sign one of his letters, see with which large letters I write because he couldn't see very well. And so he has someone that actually physically writes for him. Uh, we, we know that person is, is Tertius, who wrote this epistle. He greets you in the Lord, and, and Gaius, my host and the host of the whole church. Here's a guy whose gift uh, is hospitality. He, he he's, takes care of the whole church. He greets you, and Erastus, the treasurer of the city, greets you. Quartus, a brother, and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Paul was blessed with the relationship with a whole bunch of people. As we look back on his life, and if you go through and you just mark the different names in here, there's 36 individuals that are listed by name in, in this closing chapter. And we wonder, you know, how Paul could remember each one of those names. Well, the reason he could remember those names is he was affected by every last one of those names. His life was changed in some measurable, some, some metric, as we would call it in our day and time. There was some metric. There was something on a, he could have written down on a list someplace, and Sosipater did this in my life. 
We know what Phoebe did. She carried this very letter to Rome. We know that some of them helped him along his way. They fed him and clothed him and no doubt took care of his practical needs. Some in the gospel shared the gospel with other people and actually shared in the ministry of the Apostle Paul. It's going to be interesting when we get to heaven. One of the things that's going to be most unique about when we get there is we're going to see all these people and they're going to walk up and they're going to say, hi, I'm so-and-so, you don't know me, but you led someone else to faith in Christ and they led someone else to faith in Christ and that brother or sister that's in heaven, you'll be part of the chain of the tree of that fruit. That's why scripture says some watered and some planted and ultimately there's a harvest that's brought in Paul did pretty much a little bit of all of it and I encourage us to do the same we'll finish up this book next Thursday night would you stand and let's pray together as we do I'm going to bring the pastors up front maybe you've got a a prayer need tonight you'd like to pray with somebody Uh, we'll have the pastors up here available for prayer Anthony's going to bring the worship team and we'll I'll sing one more worship song together before we leave. But be thankful for people. Be careful with heresy. Be careful with divisive people. Make sure that you have the truth. You get the truth from the Word. Stay in the Word. I, I can't tell you the, the greatest. We were talking, uh, some of us pastors, this after, early this afternoon, we were just talking about what the greatest legacy of Pastor Chuck is. It's real easy. That one's simple. It's attention to the Word of God. Pastor Steve learned that from Pastor Chuck. I learned it from Pastor Chuck. And so the history that we have is that we love the Word of God. And so stay with the Word because you won't go wrong. Amen. Father, thank you. Thank you for the power that we have. Thank you for the history and the legacy of those that have been used in our lives to bring us to this time tonight. Pray that you continue to use each one of us, Lord. Grow us in the faith, strengthen us. Lord, we thank you for each other. Lord, I thank you for the amazing staff of this church, Lord, that are so richly uh, blessed me, blessed my family, blessed us as we serve you. We think of all of our missionaries around the world. Lord, they would be in this list. We think of those that have come to faith in Christ. Uh, Because of all those trips that we've taken to these various places, Lord, there are little pockets of believers all over the world uh, because of the faithfulness of, of people in this body. And so we pray that you continue to grow us and shape us into the image of Jesus. We bless your name. We ask all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.